Today on Focal Point with Pastor Mike Fabares. Maybe hard for you, but what I'm hoping that you do that helps accomplish the goal and the greeting, the salutation of saying Merry Christmas, is setting everything up in your life in a way, if we're gonna celebrate the victory that God has performed and accomplished in the incarnation of Christ, I wanna position everything so that I'm more likely to experience gladness and joy than if I wouldn't. Quick question, what does the book of Esther have to do with Christmas? Does anything come to mind? Well, today on Focal Point, Pastor Mike Fabares is taking us into the Old Testament story of Esther to help us better understand how to incorporate secular celebrations into our sacred observances and why it's okay. It's a fascinating discussion based on the examples set for us throughout biblical history. To share this message with a friend, go to focalpointradio.org. Well, now here's Pastor Mike. I'd like you to go to a book of the Bible that is uh, seated in a pagan culture, a pagan context. The the, the stars of the the book have pagan names. Uh, As a matter of fact, this is such an interesting book. The name of God is never even mentioned in it. There are no prayers. There's no prophets. There's no miracles. Uh, It's in a foreign land. And I think it would teach us something about uh, the way God thinks about man-made celebrations. And I want to take you to the end of the book at least the penultimate chapter of the book in Esther chapter nine. Drop down to verse number 20. And I just want to study just a few verses here near the end of Esther chapter nine. And I want to find a template in this particular book, a book that I think will play into the argument that, hey, maybe we shouldn't be so quick to believe the YouTube uh, historians when it comes to their impinging of, of our merriment with guilt, we should maybe think about even what the reality of this particular celebration is. It ended up becoming a, a holiday on the Jewish calendar, one of the nine feasts of Israel called Purim. And I, I just want to think through this as a paradigm and see if we can't take that paradigm and take a look at the modern practice of Christmas and find any transferable concepts and principles that will rightly and accurately and fairly apply to what we're dealing with today when we think about putting up stockings by the fireplace. So let's look at this in verse number 20. Mordecai, after this victory, is going to write a letter. It says, Mordecai recorded these things and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, who was also known as Xerxes in the Old Testament. Uh, So he's the Persian king, both near and far, which is thrown in to remind us of how efficient the postal service was. And what was the letter all about? Well, they were already rejoicing because they had won this war. They were slated for obliteration and slated for genocide, and they end up winning, and now they're at peace, and now he obliges them to continue to do what they were already doing, and that is they're having ticker tape parades, and they were celebrating. He was obliging them, these Jewish people who were saved, to keep the 14th day of the month of Adar, and also the 15th day of the same, same month, and to do that year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies. Wow, victory. They were saved. And as the month that had been turned from sorrow into gladness, naturally it was, right? And from mourning, they were afraid they were going to be killed, into a holiday, a special day, a holy day, a day of victory, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness instead of burying their dead and saying, we're, we're, you know, we're all dead. No, it should be days for sending gifts of food to one another and gifts to the poor. And how did they respond to that? The Jews accepted what they had started to do. They were already celebrating, right? And now it was codified as a holiday, 
what Mordecai had written to them. So this is not a prophet, this is not a leader, this is not Moses, but becomes one of the feast days of Israel in the calendar. I talked about nine feast days. There are nine feast days on the Jewish calendar throughout the 12 months of the year. Two of them were man-made. Seven of them were commenced and sanctioned by God, and all were obligated to do it because God said, but then there were two that were not, and this is one of them. Matter of fact, he goes on to explain a little bit more about that if you drop down to verse 26. It says, therefore, they called these days Purim, right? After the term Pur, which means lot, at least that's the, uh, that's the Persian name for it, different word in Hebrew. Therefore, because, middle of verse 26, because of all that was written in this letter, right, that Mordecai had written, and of what they had faced in this matter, and of what had happened to them, the Jews firmly obligated themselves and their offspring and all who joined them that without fail every single year, they would keep these two days according to what was written at the time appointed every year that these days should be remembered and kept throughout every generation in every clan and province and city and that these days of Purim but should never fall into disuse among the Jews, nor should the commemoration of these days cease among their descendants. And I would say, on what authority? And I'm going to say, it isn't Moses, and it's not the law of God. They're not even a mention of God in the book by name. This is a human decision by a human leader for a human celebration of a victory that, of course, was crediting God. But this was something that was so incorporated into the calendar of Israel, in part because God chose this book, didn't even mention God's name, as a reminder of how the sanctioning, the human sanctioning of a celebration was something appropriate for them to, to practice. And, and so they did. So number one, if you're taking notes, just on the concept here in Esther chapter 9, the whole passage that I'm looking at today, verses 20 through 23, let us, number one, sanction incarnation celebrations. I'm fine with that. I'm good with that. And I don't think there's any way to argue that just because it's not in the Bible, we shouldn't do it. We should be able to celebrate God's victories. And we have been doing it in the Christian church for centuries, from the beginning. Have those celebrations changed? Sure, they have. The cultural expression? Yes, of course. You can find the pagan roots of just about everything, but I'll bet you probably, when your seven-year-old was having a birthday party, I bet you burned a few wax-wicked things on the top of a, of a decorated sugar pod with icing on it, Right? And I bet you didn't feel like a pagan until someone like me gets on the stage and goes, that's a pagan thing you're doing there. And I think you should respond with Psalm 24. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, including rich, deep chocolate cake with burning flames on the top of it. And if I want to utilize that to celebrate the life and the gift of life in my child, listen, here's the deal. Back off. And, and you need to stop with all of that. Well, I read uh, Jeremiah 10 talks about decorating a tree and pulling a tree out of the forest and setting it up. Keep reading. That's about an idol. That's about building an idol and decorating it with silver and gold after you fashion it into some kind of image and you bow down and you worship, you trust in it because you think it's going to do evil if you don't appease it or bad in your life if you do it. One single moment of worship or fear that I have over the divine power of the tree that I was forced to put up on the week of, of, of Thanksgiving. Not a single, I'm getting at the fact that there's no engagement at all with whatever you might see as some connection. That's a complete misuse, by the way, of Jeremiah chapter 10. But you want to talk about druids or summer solstices and all that, which by the way, we wasn't even born in, in, the, in the winter time in December 25th. Do you know the first reference to the date of Christ's birth? By Hippolytus, born in the second century, 165, died 235. Hippolytus said, and it's the earliest extant copy of anything we have dating the birth of Christ, December 25th. 
by the time Chrysostom came around in the East, he, doing research and, and obviously a masterful uh, leader uh, of the church in terms of his resources to study, and all that, uh, date, it's December 25th. I, I'm just saying, have there been disputes about the, the, the time of the birth? Of, yeah, there have been. But it would be really funny for all the armchair historians and, and, and self-appointed Bible teachers to find out when it's all said and done and the dust settles, right, that he actually was born on December 25th. But even if we're wrong, what matters to me is setting aside the victory celebration in my calendar to do what God asks us to do in celebrating the good that God has done. And I'm going to utilize human means like when I need to eat a good steak, I'm going to get it wherever I get it. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. Verse 27, if one of the unbelievers invite you to dinner and you're disposed to go, well, then eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the grounds of conscience. What are you talking about? If someone says to you, oh, it's been offered in sacrifice, then don't eat it if he's freaking out for the sake of the one who's informed you and for the sake of conscience. Well, not your conscience, verse 29, but for his. Why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? Well, that is the job of a lot of people today when it comes to Christmas celebration. Verse 30, if I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that for which I give thanks? Now, this verse you know, verse 31, so whatever you eat or drink, whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do you understand that passage that you often quote about doing things for the glory of God is in the context of someone getting meat that might have been sacrificed by a temple prostitute at a shrine in Corinth and bringing it home and having a barbecue? And it says, eat it to the glory of God. And stop asking questions. And stop your YouTube searches on this. Just stop it. Eat the stupid meat and enjoy it. And do it to the glory of God. And so if I'm going to hang a tree, because that's the cultural expression of me celebrating the goodness of God or hanging stockings and putting snicker bars in it for my kids, then I'm going to do that for the glory of God. And you want to, you want to start talking about pagan connections? Let's talk about the pagan connections of your laptop or your smartphone or the pagan connections of your shoes or your socks or the Kleenex you use. We could go on and on. The, the pagan origins of coffee tables, right? We could ruin everything for you if all we want to do is bring up matters of conscience. You understand how that game is played? And of course, they only want to play it so far as they can sit back and go see how smart we are and we know more than you about it. Stop. Since people, I'm, I'm teaching to you, not them. Stop listening to them, please, right? Recognize this. The earth is the Lord's, the fullness thereof. We are celebrating in a humanly mandated celebration. I get it. It's not in the Bible in terms of when we should, but the victory that was accomplished when he took on flesh and blood, that's in the Bible. And guess what we're going to do? We're going to celebrate that. We're going to humanly sanction that celebration. Now, two ways to do it. That's good. Someone's glad that there's Christmas. And for those of you that didn't clap, I got two more things to say. Back to Esther chapter nine. Because <laughs> I've already revealed what a hassle Christmas can be. There's a lot to it. It's a lot of work. Go back to Esther chapter nine. Look at verse 22 again. When I'm thinking about sanctioning some celebrations, I think I ought to do it kind of like they did there in the Bible. And whenever they're celebrating the victory that God has accomplished on a holy day, a special day, a, an exceptional day, well, then I'd like to do some exceptional things. And here's what the Bible says we ought to be engaged in, at least if we're going to celebrate the good that God has done. We should realize that those days are days for celebration, not sorrow. Look at it. On the days in which the Jews got relief from their enemies as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, from mourning into a holiday, literally in Hebrew, a, a meal day, a feast day. And then he goes on to unpack that. They should then feast. They should be days of feasting and gladness. Okay, let's just start with that. Um, if I said to you, be happy, which is what I'm saying when I say, Merry Christmas, what I'm hoping that you do that helps accomplish the goal and the greeting, the salutation of saying Merry Christmas, is setting everything up in your life in a way, if we're going to celebrate the victory that God has performed and accomplished in the incarnation of Christ, I want to position everything so that I'm more likely to experience gladness and joy 
than if I wouldn't. Now, here's two things. Just for the sake of showing the pattern, go to Leviticus chapter 23 with me real quick. Leviticus 23, verse 39. The Feast of Booths. It's a, it's a camping celebration. A camping celebration, a lavish camp. I mean, this is a glamping celebration, trust me. You are going to pull out all the stops. But one thing you can't do is ordinary work. You're not supposed to do any regular work. It's called a solemn rest. 15th day, verse 39, of the seventh month, when you've gathered in the produce of the land, you shall celebrate the feast of the Lord for seven days. On the first day shall be a day of solemn rest. On the eighth day, a solemn rest. So you've got these Sabbaths there that are put between this week of feasting. But that, you'll see, is a pattern throughout the explanations of God's feast days when you're celebrating something good that God has done, like this celebration, the Feast of Booths, or the Feast of Tabernacles, was God brought us through the wilderness, our forefathers. And we're never going to forget that, but we're going to keep celebrating this as the Feast of Booths. And one thing we're going to do is we're not going to do any ordinary work. We're not, we're, we're, that's a phrase you'll find, by the way, in the Bible regarding his feast. No ordinary work. Solemn days of rest. I'm going to stop doing the things that would be promised in Scripture to bring me problems. I say that because in Genesis 3, work to earn a living is supposed to be, and uh, we try to mitigate it, but it's supposed to be thorns and thistles and sweat. That's how it's described. Right? Your work as you work it, like the field, you're going to have thorns in it. So nothing's going to go well in your job the way you'd like it to go. You're going to have barriers and problems. And it's going to be by the sweat of your brow. You're going to earn your, your food. So what you're supposed to do on a feast day, if you're going to celebrate God's victory or the good things God has done, you're supposed to stop doing things that you know generally are going to cause the headaches that you're going to have in earning your bread. So no regular work. We stop doing it. Now, is there going to be work involved? Lots of work involved. And if you do do festive celebration, you know how much work it is. But no regular work. The work that you go through normally that brings you the kind of grief and the scabs of thorns and thistles, that needs to stop. You need to take that time and say, I'm not going to focus on the pressure of the spreadsheets, the board meetings, or any of that, and I'm going to take a break from all of that. Solemn rest. No ordinary work. And then I'm going to do things that position my heart that I think are going to be helpful, stopping short of anything sinful. I'm going to do whatever I can to make that a joyful celebration. Like what? Well, this is this helps. Decorations, verse 40. You shall take on the first day fruit of splendid trees, branches of the, of the palm trees, boughs of leafy trees, willows of the brook, and you shall rejoice before your God for seven days. You shall celebrate, celebrate it as a feast to the Lord for seven days. It's going to be a statute throughout your generations. You shall celebrate it in the seventh month, and you're going to dwell in these tents, right? Dwell in booths for seven days. All the native Israelites shall dwell in booths. Your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths, and I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am Lord your God. And so Moses said, that's what we're going to do. And they celebrate with feasting, just like they did in Purim. Everyone knew, you know, you want to make me happy. Let's have a big meal and sit on the couch stuffed when we're done. That is a good feeling. It's a good thing. And you need to get off your diet. You need to stop with all your lame excuses about not engaging in things that God says, this is part of what makes life good, right? Being a person that receives the good that God provides in food and receiving it with thanksgiving and doing that thing that makes the heart glad and doing that in a way that is all in memory of and in honor of what Christ has done for us. In this case, that he put on flesh and blood, the son of God, to be our savior. And we do things like we feast and we we stop working. Number two, I'm saying this, we got to aim at uncommon joy. I hope you're joyful and work to be joyful all the time. I hope you come home after work, put your feet up and you get a little rest and that's great. Okay, but you ought to have a special time to celebrate. And when you celebrate some victory that God has accomplished, you ought to aim for some uncommon joy, which means you're going to do things in the surrounding environment of your life, whatever it might be, that's going to help you short of sinning, short of crossing lines of transgression. 
into festivity, into food, into decorations, into things that make things more joyful than they normally would be. And you should have that as a seasonal thing. It should come and go on your calendar as a part of a dedication and an obligation in your mind to say, we're going to work to celebrate with gladness. That's the goal. That's the point. For whatever it takes to extract the thorns and thistles, if, but just for a few days, to feast and to celebrate, to do all that you can to engage in uncommon joy. I hope you're a joyful person all the time, but you had better do all you can to be extra joyful in a time that we're celebrating the victory, in this case, of the incarnation of the victor over death. Secondly, one last phrase there in the bottom of verse 22. It comes in two categories, but one verb governs it there in Esther chapter 9, verse 22. They should be days for sending gifts of food to one another and right, for sending gifts to the poor. Right? I'm supposed to be someone who is engaged, let's put it this way, number three, in exceptional generosity. God has always told the people of God to be generous. You see a person in need, you ought to meet the need. Right? The thief, uh, the, the, the Jew that fell uh, to the, to the robbers on the road to Jericho, right? you should always learn from that. Do to your neighbor, do good to your neighbor, be generous. All that's good all year round. But there ought to be times when we set apart special days, special times to celebrate the greatness of God. And one of the things that we do is we make sure everyone feels a sense of that by you engaging in this great generosity of giving gifts. I mean, I, there's stuff that I could buy for myself, but there's something about the joy that is received that you get when you're the recipient of those things. And you're like, I, I didn't expect that. And, and you gave that freely and joyfully and extravagantly. And, and that, that's a, that's a, a trigger, uh, an impetus, a, a motivation uh, of joy. And if that's the point, in other words, for me to aim at joy and do everything I can within my environs to set myself up for joy and gladness to celebrate the victory of God, in this case, the incarnation of Christ, then I ought to be making sure that I'm doing all I can laterally to make that happen around me, the giving of gifts. Even if you think about Mordecai and Esther risking their lives, think about that. The, the giving that you give is in the shadow of that great giving that they gave of their, of their, of their well-being, and they risk their own, their own health and their own life for that. Think about Christ. Christ gave his all, right? God had him lay down his life for us. First John 3 says, then I ought to lay down my life for each other, and now I'm picking a special day to say, now I'm really putting that into turbocharge, and I'm going to give even more than I normally would. That's the picture in the Purim celebration. And I think it's a good pattern for us. If we're going to sanction celebrations of God's victory, particularly through the incarnation of Christ to deliver us from our sins, we ought to celebrate it. We ought to aim at joy an uncommon joy. We should always be joyful, but extra joy. And we ought to always be generous, but we ought to, gain, we ought to aim at a kind of uh, exceptional generosity. And I should, get, I should engage in that for the good of the celebration itself in honor of Christ. I'm not saying you got to you know, put the elf on the shelf or, you know, there's a lot of things you're like, I don't even see how that fits. Fine, define, great. But for you to pull out a few of the stops and make Christmas festive, it's a good thing. And I would say one of the things you need to do, and it's interesting that Santa Claus has become, you know, such a feature in American, uh, you know, pop Western culture. And we've often forgotten, and I've preached on this, and you can find these sermons about uh, St. Nicholas, who was a pastor in a city of Myra in the fourth century on the Mediterranean coast born in Patera, moved there to Myra, he's a pastor, and uh, he's known for his generosity. As a matter of fact, it is the, the historical precedent for the picture of the fat guy coming down the chimney and, and giving gifts. Now, I'm not into lying to my kids about a fat kid in the chimney, but I am 
certainly about saying one of the things we need to be doing at a festive time of commemorating God's victory is giving gifts. And he's not a bad example. Matter of fact, the story that comes, it ends up being the precedent or the foundation for the whole stocking thing is him giving gold coins to some gals that were going to be conscripted to a life of prostitution because they didn't have a dowry and they were poor. His heart was moved and he did anonymously, apparently, this is part of the story, gave money to make sure that that didn't happen so they could have a dowry and they would have a normal life there in the fourth century. He was moved by people's stories. He looked at people that didn't have what he had and he was engaging in that. He was, he was soft-hearted. He gives to people and, and like it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, you start giving, you start being generous. God loves to be generous to the generous so that you can be enriched in every way for every good work. God is able to, get, to grant seed for the sower. He's able to give more. And he gave a lot to Pastor Nick and he was very wealthy, partly because of the story in his past, his parents had died. It was long. He had a big inheritance, nevertheless. He had money and he used that money all the time, open-handedly, not only anonymously in compassion for people that needed his help, but just, he was giving gifts. He was just a generous man. And even in that, you think, okay, I'm not into all these weird things they do at Christmas. Well, there are some of them that at least should get our minds thinking about why they're even in a tradition in in Christmas. Now, some, you know, don't have any connection. And some are just for you to bring the leafy boughs and decorate your house, and you may not even understand why there's a connection. I've tried to draw connections historically and things like the lights on your house and things clearly. But what doesn't even matter. What matters is that you aim at, at real joy and real gladness that you are one who's expressing generosity, which is always comports with the idea of celebrating God's good and that you keep God in view and you do it all to the glory of God. That's what Christmas time should be about. And when we say Merry Christmas, we should say, okay, positioning everything I can to have that experience because we're doing it in honor of Christ. And because they oblige themselves in man-made celebrations to do this and they keep doing it even down to today, I think it's not a bad thing for our kids, our grandkids, our great-grandkids until Christ comes back to celebrate the incarnation of Christ and to do it with a lot of, of the cultural trappings of our expressions of Christmas joy as long as your mind and your kids' minds and your grandkids' minds stay focused on what this is really all about. Jesus Christ who came to conquer death for us. So in that regard, I do wish you a Merry Christmas. I want you to have one, a celebratory Christmas this year. You're listening to Pastor Mike Fabares and the second half of a special Christmas message titled, Celebrate the Incarnation. This is Focal Point. Now, if you'd like to listen to this entire message uninterrupted, just go to focalpointradio.org. Well, whether today is your first time listening or you've faithfully tuned in since our first broadcast in July of 1998, we're so grateful you've chosen to spend time with us as we proclaim the depths of Scripture to a culture that has lost its way. At Focal Point, we believe the accurate teaching of Scripture is our strong anchor in the storms of life. That's why we exist. The attacks on God, the Bible, and Christianity are strategically intensifying. And we want you and everyone who listens to be equipped with the truth in order to stand firm against a world that corrupts and distorts. Your financial and prayer support helps keep Focal Point on the air, reaching thousands of people every day with the light and truth of Christ. In addition to producing this daily program, Focal Point also provides biblical tools like weekly devotional emails and practical Bible teaching resources. This month's featured book is called The Essential Scriptures. To give and request your copy of this helpful reference handbook, call 888-320-5885. That's 888-320-5885. Or go to focalpointradio.org. 
You can also write to Focal Point, Post Office Box 2850, Laguna Hills, California, 92654. And by the way, make sure to check your mailbox for a special gift from Pastor Mike and Focal Point. We've created a magnet called Daily Petitions from the Lord's Prayer to help you stay focused on God each and every day. We hope this will act as a great encouragement to you, as well as a reminder to pray. If you're not on our mailing list, you can request your magnet at focalpointradio.org slash magnet. That's focalpointradio.org slash magnet. Well, I'm Dave Drewy, inviting you to join us again Wednesday as Pastor Mike continues his Christmas series. This time we're turning our attention to the town of Bethlehem. That's coming up Wednesday, right here on Focal Point. Hey there, Pastor Mike here. We're almost out of time, but before we go, I want to personally invite you to contact us here. Let us know how we can be praying for you. Head on over to focalpointradio.org and click the contact page or send me a note on Facebook, facebook.com slash Pastor Mike or twitter.com slash Pastor Mike. Can't wait to hear from you. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Focal Point Ministries.